put up your spurs, partner. Be ready. Oh, shoot! There's going to be a gunfight! <laughs> is there always a... Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Walter Brennan is with us today. Or Walter Houston, or one of those Walters. Um, Walter Cronkite. I'm Walter Cronkite! <laughs> Kennedy died today at 1 p.m. Standard Time. Yeehaw! And that's the only and thing that's I can the think way of. It was. <laughs> that's the only Gold. thing I can think of when it comes to Cronkite is when he announced Candy's death on Dramatically TV. take off my glasses. Yes. <laughs> and have like a little lump in my throat for a second. All right. Well, the reason why we're putting on uh, Western affectations uh, right now uh, is because we saw the Hateful Eight, Quentin Tarantino's eighth film, which is debatable. Um, it sure is good in marketing. Oh no, sure. Well, I mean, it sure is good in marketing. <laughs> Are we gonna do the whole review like this, Rufus? <laughs> I just called you Rufus. I really, I, I'm te really tempted to say yes. But Why not? I, nah, no. Nah. It, I think we would wear our, our. I think Yosemite Sam would come and like <laughs> sue us. Ah, I hate that rabbit. Yeah, but um. No, well, we, it's his eighth film. Well, he, it depends on hey, if Blake, you... It's, it's a, the thing a that's interesting is that, well, Kill Bill 1 came out, and he called it his fourth film. And at that time, that made sense, because he'd only made three films before that. But then he makes Kill Bill 2, and it just says the new film. It doesn't say the fifth film by Tarantino. And then he didn't do that gimmick again until now. So I guess he counts Kill Bill as one movie. I'd count even Kill Bill as one film. I, I would, I, they, too. I end up well, always ranking them Weren't they supposed to be as, that way, though? Yeah, I mean it was a mar it was a marketing decision to cut it into two, but he was he clearly had a say over how to do it. Yeah, but um, but we're not here to talk about Kill Bill, at least not for the sec for the moment. We're here to talk about the Hateful Eight, which we saw in glorious seventy millimeter. Yeah, I didn't know this. One of my favorite films from my childhood was done in seventy millimeter, the Panavision format, Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. Yeah. Oh, of course. Well, well, also and so many uh, other films too. Charlton Heston seemed to, uh, he must have gotten bored with it after a while, because he did Ten <laughs> Commandments, he did Ben-Hur, I'm sure he did something else. Um, the other the other technical aspect, um, to get out of the way, is that this is also shot on what's called Ultra 70 uh, Panavision, which uh, means that it's even, it's really wide. Yeah. Because it's one thing to say that your movie shot on 70 millimeter, and a number of films have done that over the years, like, um, actually, um... I mean, before uh, the Hateful Eight, the Master was the most recent one. Okay. Which, uh, and as a side note, That's, I, that was regular seventy millimeter. I guess. I mean, that wasn't like that wide. That was more like, I don't know. It was a much bigger frame. It, it was a much bigger film to look at. Obviously, when I saw it in the theater, but it wasn't that wide. Um, but a lot of films have done it. Like Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet was done seventy yeah. millimeter. Um, the tricky thing, though, is that you know we, you and I saw it in what is ostensibly a regular sized movie screen. Yeah, and well, the our little... screen, and yeah. they they put it at the right width, but still that left about four feet of the screen below it uh, I, blank. I had a weird moment where I, uh, when I was in the theater, because this was my second time seeing it. The first time I saw the movie, it was in a theater where they made the screen 
the size so that the whole movie could fit in it. Right. And so I just thought, okay, that's how it looks. But when we saw it, there was a big black bar right below it. And yeah. You, and you got really worried, like, oh my god, it's not, it, it's it's not the right dimensions. What are yeah. we gonna do? <laughs> yeah, I. For a second, I freaked out, but I didn't move or anything because I'm like, I don't want to move my, my seat. Stay I'll calm, Jack. Well, when that happens, I mean, occasionally that's happened where there's a technical issue at the start of a mm -hmm. movie. And if I'm, like, on the end of an aisle, I'll rush out uh, to, to tell somebody that, like, the sound is messed up or there's, like, an issue with the projection. Where do you go to tell somebody? Like, the front desk? Yeah, well, you find an usher. They, you know, they, they have, like, walkie-talkies. Uh -huh. They go and alert people. I mean... You know, you, you assume that there is, like, a system or something that takes care of this. Uh, but I didn't want to move out. I was in the middle row, too, and I didn't want to leave my seat. You, know, you have that big opening where the, uh, the the stage coach is riding and, you know, you see the crutch. But then I soon immediately realized, oh, wait, no, this is the right frame. Okay, right. it's just – the weird thing is that they – they left a huge black bar at the bottom of the screen, but nothing at the top. Yeah. But I got I got used to it. Yeah. I, it's it's no big deal. I mean, some uh, when movies have those sort of problems, eventually once you get into the story and everything, you just forget about all yeah, the, yeah, the weird things, the imperfections. <clears throat> but but the hateful eight. Yeah. So this movie, um, of course, you know the the premise, as maybe some of you know, is that. Uh, this guy, uh, John the Ruth, John, John the Ruth, no, John Ruth the Hangman. He's the John the Ruth. John the Hangman Ruth. Yes, he is a bounty hunter. He's captured. He captured an outlaw named Daisy Domergu. He's yes. taken her to Red Rock to hang. Yes. Well, he's yeah, he's on his way to take her. And in the first two chapters, of course, Tarantino does chapters as his segments. He, what is this a book? Well, he he might think of, he. It's weird when you hear him in interviews. He'll often say like his process is that he writes a screenplay more like a book, and then filming it is almost you know to direct it. He has to kind of rewrite it so that he can actually shoot it. Right. Like I guess that's why at some point it'll be interesting if he actually takes his you know lives up to his threat to stop making movies and be a novelist <laughs> he keeps saying that and i'm like sick of hearing it it's just oh, shut up but here's the interesting thing it does have a similar pace to a book i feel it takes its time though. it took its time in the first well, two acts well he does that though in other movies i mean glorious bastards took its time yeah but i never really but inglorious bastards was it shifted its uh, its focus for, uh, in several instances. Yeah, no, and no, it one... was it was it, it did kind of tell two stories in a way, or a little bit more, right? Because so... you had so many characters here. It's very much about setting up these characters, and first, it's only like the four characters because at first it's John Ruth, then they pick up Samuel Jackson, who's Major Marquis Warren, right? Um, and that's the first chapter. Then the second chapter, they pick up. Um, this former leader, not, he wasn't part of a rebel group. He was like the son of a group, yeah. uh, the, uh, Chris Mannix. And that's the second chapter. Then the third chapter is when they actually get to Minnie's haberdashery, right. which is where the rest of the movie takes place. Right. Ironic, um, considering the screen is so wide and it still takes place in a one room shack. Oh yeah. No, I think that's his, uh. You know, Tarantino is nothing if not kind of like a subversive prankster in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, he 
he, <laughs> I mean, he, no he, giant vistas, no big mountain ranges, except for you know what you see in in the first does, few chapters. I mean, when you get he does give you some scenery. mountain ranges here and there. Yeah, of course. I mean, he doesn't I, deny that, you that. It's but all just that, that goes out the window once they're basically in there. So, and aside from a bunch of exterior shots of people, run, uh, you know, trying to not blow away in a blizzard. Yeah, it takes place all inside this one building. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, but the idea is the idea Kurt though. Kurt Russell. I, yeah, he he has to take her to hang, and but he's when he when he arrives at this haberdashery, there are all these unsavory characters. You have uh, Tim Roth as this oh, kind of over the top sounding Englishman who is actually the hangman. Like right. John Ruth is called the hangman, but he actually doesn't hang the people. He right. just follows through to see that they make sure that they get hanged. Yeah. And then there's uh Michael Madsen who plays as cowboy and there's uh well, Mexican... well what else what else would Michael Madsen play? Eh, you know. <laughs> but and then there's there's a Mexican and there's a Confederate general in there and Kurt Russell's convinced that one of these people is here to set Domergu free. This here is Daisy Domergu. She's wanted dead or alive for murder. Ten thousand dollars. That money's mine, boys. Don't want to share it. I ain't gonna lose it. When that sun comes out, I'm taking this woman into Red Rock to hang. Now, is there anybody here committed to stopping me from doing that? Really? Nobody got a problem with this. Well, I guess that's very fortunate for me. However, I hope you all understand, I can't just take your word. Circumstances force me to take precautions. When you say precautions, why do I feel you mean me? Who's, who is trying to do this before they do it? Yeah, I think... Um... One of the things that Tarantino has talked about in interviews I've watched uh, with him and that I found really fascinating with this movie is that, yeah, he's using this wide, he's using this super wide 70 millimeter format, which you would usually associate, you know, like, you know, like for, you would think this would be done for like IMAX documentaries or right. something. But what's interesting about it is that there are times where, yeah, of course you're just looking at the characters in the foreground, but after a while, you have to think about, okay, what are these characters in the background doing? Are yeah. they about to do something that, you know, I have to watch? Are they just kind of minding their own business? Are they plotting some kind of scheme? Are they going to do something to our main characters in the foreground? So in the way the format plays into the sense of paranoia. Yeah, oh, I, I think so. I think that he, by by using this format, he doesn't just he doesn't just do it to perversely use this format to as some kind of ironic gesture it's not just for a prank it's, i mean uh, yeah well at first you think it might be but event but as it goes on it, it you know it's like he could have shot this in a regular widescreen format and maybe got that result uh but but something about this it, it kind of lends itself to hat like it's an interesting thing because even though he, as a director he's still kind of telling you where to look and he's having shots that have a particular point of view, there's an element to it which I really appreciated and 
thought was kind of unique that it it brought like a very theatrical element it felt like at times you're watching a play right which i i was actually kind of curious to ask you about that because i know that you uh somewhat notoriously hate the theater true but did you feel that at all in this movie no there was one moment where i realized that you know this is this is a story that takes place in one location you know it's easily adapt well okay maybe not easily because i don't know too much about the theater but you know it is conceivably it could be conceivably adapted into a play. Yeah. Uh, probably not, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, it never struck me as theatrical in in those sort of terms. It didn't really seem to evoke the theater for me. No. Well, uh, well, I, I guess part of it, too, is because his movies are so talky. But it's such good talk. Yeah. Um, Quentin Tarantino loves his talky talk. Yeah. Of course, the thing also to mention about... This movie, uh, especially the way, well, the way that we saw it, and maybe some people have seen it, but a lot of people won't because there are two versions of the movie. We saw what's called the 70 millimeter roadshow version, which had, where you get like a booklet, it has like a poster, which is kind of awesome. Which means we're better than you. If you don't have that booklet. I don't. I don't even understand why you watch movies. Exactly. Well, the thing about this too. <laughs> Seriously, though, it is kind of cool to get a booklet when you go into a well, movie booklet, theater. and then also an experience which I haven't had in a while. Like the last time I had this experience was when I saw the uh, uh, when Turner Classic Movies had a, a re-release one night of Lawrence of Arabia. Hmm. Of course, when you see that, you get the overture and you get the intermission. Uh, and here we got that. Yeah. Here you actually, you know, you get to sit, settle down. You just have like one image of the the guy riding a stagecoach against a red backdrop, right. aka the Wells Fargo logo. <laughs> and then you get an intermission in the middle, so you can go out, and go to the bathroom. Yeah, and I, I love that. Like, uh, I wish more films did that because there are a lot of two and a half hour, three hour films out there. I wish they had done it for the last, for the for the, the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie because by the two hour mark, my like my bladder was about to explode. I feel like that movie's still. Playing. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, I mean, like, that's something that... Uh, or even, like, with the Lord of the Rings movies, even though, like, they, they move pretty swiftly. Yeah. Like, with especially with Return of the King, it might have been nice to have had an intermission somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, and, so that we could digest the three or four endings that it had. Well, and it's funny, because <laughs> I think I might have mentioned this once on the podcast, that Tarantino had an experience years ago, I was reading some biography about him, where he... Well, he was in he was in Amsterdam and he saw JFK in a theater, and there they actually put in an intermission oh. and they put it at at right after uh, Donald Sutherland gives his long monologue about you know giving all the information to uh, Jim Garrison right uh, and I feel I and he he made a great point that if you have an intermission there you can actually suddenly digest everything that has been said to you and yeah you know decide whether that's or not actually yeah that's crap. actually a perfect spot for an yeah when but whereas when you just watch the movie as it is you know the movie just keeps going on and you have to kind of watch it again to kind of get more you know oliver stone talked about that hmm. he put it he had an intermission in alexander a movie that i love oh oh you mean like the dvd version yeah Okay. Yeah, but, that... but and he mentioned his reason why. He says, "Well, back in the day, there used to be an intermission in these sort of large epic films, and yeah. the idea wasn't just to you know give people a break. It was so that you could kind of walk around, maybe go outside the movie theater and get a smoke. It's a, but it was also to let you think about what you had just seen." Yeah, I mean, I can 
I mean, I'm going to see, I think I'll see Hayfield. And the intermission comes right after a really awesome scene. You need that intermission to really, to really digest that. Yeah. Um, is that the scene I'm thinking of? Is that the... With the general and Marquis Warren? Oh, no, I was thinking of Alexander for a second. Oh, uh... I was trying to remember what scene... Is that, like, the sex scene? No. Okay. <laughs> Alright. That was... No, 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 yeah. Well, in The Hateful Eight, of course, yeah, the intermission comes at uh, when Samuel Jackson delivers basically one of his greatest monologues in the history of cinema. A very Samuel L. Jackson monologue. Uh, and without saying too much, the word dingus might be in there. That just gave me perverse pleasure. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like one of my new favorite monologues has the word dingus in it. Like that was like, I remember when I, the, the intermission happened, I quickly went on Facebook and that was my first impression. <laughs> I'm such like a little kid in that way. <laughs> he said dingus. Um, but yeah, you get that intermission. And then the second half is where it becomes like, that's where the, it's funny how, even though it's it, it takes inspiration from the thing, of course, along yeah. with you have Kurt Russell again starring, and you have Ennio Morricone on the score in a snowy uh, setting. Yeah, where you know the mood is very ominous. Um, it's funny that the bum, second bum. half of the movie, it's very bloody, <laughs> extremely bloody. Well, I don't think we expected anything less from a Tarantino no, film. Well, but it, but it get, but, but it's but I think maybe it is related. I thought at first, well, maybe this is being very like peck and paw or something. But <laughs> no, it's very much. I think it's closer in, in sensibility to the thing because the thing is a gross. The, the remake, I mean, is a gross right. movie. And of course, you know, also it's. Um, and the funny thing is, is that Tarantino's gotten to the point where he can kind of also. Uh, do other stuff he's done before in a new way because this is also, referencing himself well reservoir dogs is also kind of like a thing type of narrative or like night of the living dead well no it's 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 sort of the bottle movie format yeah the bottle movie of course i think about reservoir dogs i reservoir dogs has flashbacks to what happened before but it's mostly about it's in the warehouse it's mostly about a handful of men inside of a warehouse trying to figure out which among them is is the traitor yeah and this is a similar thing you've got people stranded in the middle of a blizzard yeah. trying to figure yeah. out which one of them is yeah is going to is going to kill yeah. somebody this time it almost and, and that's the yeah. thing yeah, too. It's, yeah. It's, the thing, and also, it, it also carries a bit of a Hitchcockian element, too, because a lot of times in Hitchcock movies, uh, you know, he talked about the difference between surprise and building suspense. Right. And, you know, there might be, a, a, there, there is one surprise in this movie, which I, I, we should mention spoilers later, but, like, the way that Tarantino built suspense, like, oh, man, I just loved it, because... I don't know, should we get into minor spoilers here? Let's save spoilers for a little All later. All right, well, I'll just say that there's a point where a character is going to be betrayed, and you see the entire thing, it's a very long take where you just see a character in the, in the foreground Again, doing that foreground, something. background. Yeah, and, and you see, and you know that you now, and you've just been given the piece of information about, uh, with Tarantino as narrator, by the way. Yeah. He literally comes in as the narrator. And it, it was funny because we saw the movie with a friend and he didn't know that was Tarantino. <laughs> um, I mean, Tarantino's done that before. He had Samuel Jackson's narrator in Inglourious Bastards. Right. Um, and then, yeah, so then everything, then you start, then things start to unravel. Betrayals become more amplified. 
Samuel Jackson gets to be even more Samuel Jackson-y. Right. Um, and yeah, everything starts to unravel. And then also he gets Tarantino in a very clever way because this is very much a mystery format, you know, gets to use his nonlinear technique again, which I hadn't seen in a while because Django is pretty straightforward. Yeah. Django is. And even glorious bastards is pretty straightforward. Yeah. I mean, there are very few, there's very little call for flashbacks in either film. You might have an aside in either film, like, like explaining why films are so flammable or, uh, or you know a few montages in in Django, but it, they they don't really need to go back in time in those films. So yeah, we've gone two films without uh, without fla- yeah. flashing I back. Think by, I think by this point, eight films in, he's shown that he can do whatever he, he can do a film that's linear. He can do a film that's not. Are we linear. counting a uh, Death Proof? Is that the film that he did before? He before Inglorious Bastards, Kill Bill Fourth, Death Proof Five. Bastard Six, Django Seven. Right. I mean, does Death Proof have many flashbacks? Mm, no, I yeah. don't think so. I'm you go slightly remember. back in time to see the scene of oh, the no, play no, over no, and no, over well, again. But that that's... He, well, the one thing that he does. Well, no, he does show. You know, he shows the car crash happen and every single person in the car how they die. Them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. But yeah, no real flashbacks in that. No, three well, films. I well, guess. this one, the flashback really makes sense. Yeah, where it's put in. Like, it, you, you you need do... it. You need it to retroactively build the groundwork for what had just happened prior to the flashback. Yeah, and it, but the, the the cool thing about that too, though, is that now, and I know what, at some point, I guess you'll watch, maybe you watch the movie on DVD. But, right. Um, it 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 adds something to when you see it a second time, and when you see it again, that you. Uh, <clears throat> aside from the little things of like oh that's how that happened that's why that door is like that um right you but you also get a sense of who the people were originally in the haberdashery yeah and it adds like this extra dimension of you know a lot of things too that when it comes to tarantino he plays a lot with uh performance the idea of performance itself as a really key element. I mean, that's, I think, something that... Not necessarily just actors playing characters, but characters playing other characters. Play, characters playing characters to the point where... I mean, you know, he, he's... he's Where... He, where... The, the characters in the movie need to be fooled, but you also... some You may or may not be fooled, depending on the situation. Like, in, in Bastards, you know that the British soldiers aren't German at first, but the other Germans don't know that. Until there comes that point where, yeah, (laughs) Arrivederci, yeah, or Italian for that matter, Uh, Gorlami. Every once in a while, I look back at Inglorious Bastards and I realize, man, Brad Pitt was in that movie. Yes, I completely forget about Brad Pitt being Brad Pitt in that film. Maybe is it because of Christoph Waltz? No, no, it's just because Brad Pitt just does something so different from what he did before. Yeah. That he's he's not just doing Brad Pitt. No, he was he was actually he was I mean he he, he I think he very I think I actually mentioned this in like in in our when I talk about 7, but I guess it's just I've been underestimating Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt this whole time. Range. Yeah. I mean, I think that when you first, you know what it was at the time in the 90s, he actually tried to fight against that because he initially was thought of as this like pretty boy actor. Right. But then he, you know, in, in one year he does seven and twelve monkeys, and it's like, oh no, I can do other things. 
and then seven he does... and twelve monkeys, nineteen monkeys. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think he's one. You know, sometimes you get stars who see themselves more as character actors, and I think he's one of those people who, even though he's a super huge star, yeah. Brad Pitt could easily trade on his good looks and and you know on being Brad Pitt, but he he, he decides to go further than that, which is which is great. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm glad that he uh, he does something which. Um, you know he is the, you know he 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 shows star quality in Glorious Bastards, but he's also playing. You know he has a goofy accent, <laughs> two goofy accents. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. All right, but, uh, but hateful back to hateful eight. eight. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I love this movie. I, I, you know, like I said, I've seen it twice, and I hope to see it again. I think when we first got out of the movie, though. You you kind of need to digest it a little bit. Yeah, and I'll talk about that when we when we get into the spoiler part of the podcast. Yeah. There is one thing I want to say before we move on to that spoilerific part Please. of this podcast, which is something that the next day after I'd seen Hatefully, I, I brought this up to my brother. He came with us to yeah. the, the thing. And I said, "All right, here's what I think is is awesome about this." Like Quentin Tarantino gets criticized for his violence sometimes. Yeah, uh, he also makes great use of his of his violence, and you know. You, you could be on either side of that. Well, but, but here's the thing that's great about his use of violence. Yeah, maybe we could talk about that in a moment. The thing that's great is that violence in Tarantino films has repercussions. Yeah. it's re- Remember when we were talking about whatever it is, Fast and Furious film that just came out, when The Rock is like, my friends are in trouble, breaks his cast well, off. Well, that's what I talked about. That's because, what you talked about. Yes. Usually in a typical action film, a guy could get wounded, but he uh, a character will get wounded, but he'll sh- like shake it off in time for the climax. Yeah. Or, when people oh, yeah. in Quentin Tarantino films get shot, they are shot for the rest of the film. Oh yeah. Well, is... well, that's uh, you know very the star of his career, Reservoir Dogs. You know, you have Tim, Tim Roth, Roth spending most in a of the time of blood. Ble- bleeding out on the floor. Yeah, and then also the opening of Kill Bill, which is kind of it's... why he does need flashbacks, <laughs> so they could be doing something other than bleeding throughout the course of the film. Even if it's in the past. Yes. Or Kill Bill. I mean, it opens with the bride being, you know, shot, and she looks really messed up. Yeah, but like, that but that has serious repercussions. She's in a coma for a very long time. And, yeah. And it, takes her, and it takes her a long time to finally get out of that. And by then, all the people who have wronged her are in different places in their lives. Yeah. And, well, well, it kind of sucks that, like, Tarantino, over time, he... Uh, like he he's been criticized for it, but he, it's almost like he's been criticized for it for doing it well. Yeah. Or in a sense that he's not. Oh, like it's a like hack. oh, he could be violent, but you can't you can't be that good at being violent. Yeah. It's... Or, or let's give another example. In Inglorious Bastards, there is a gunfight that happens in the middle of that film. Yeah. And key people they need die in that in that gunfight. Yes. And the people, even the people who are survive are wounded, and they have to work around those wounds. Yeah. It's funny that. Um, this isn't, I don't know if I should say this as a spoiler. I'll be careful about how I say this. Careful, we'll carefully couch this, and the, we'll edit it if necessary. No, no, no. There is a character in The Hateful Eight who does get hanged. I'm not going to say right. who it is, but when this happens, that's the, that to me, I've, I, that's, that stayed with me for days. Yeah. Because it's, it's one thing to see somebody get shot. That's just, we've seen so many movies where people get shot you know, granted, you can make it bloodier. You can add a certain effect, like, say, somebody's head getting blown off. Right. Um, but to actually see somebody writhing in pain, and and sometimes in movies, 
if somebody is get, dying from strangulation, they it happens pretty quickly. Yeah, they don't they don't they don't hold on it very long. But this is like it felt like a minute of screen time was yeah. dedicated to this hanging, and and not only that, but like other characters having to control the rope, and and yeah, I I think it's because of you know again you're actually watching somebody die. That felt much more impactful to me than any, like maybe than any. I'm almost tempted to say like that's the most troubling death scene in any Tarantino film. Although I probably I'd have to think back to, you know he you know he's had so many death scenes. Yeah. I mean the thing is though he varies it up. He doesn't stick to one type of violence. I mean, Pulp Fiction. It's one of the funniest things ever when Marvin gets his head blown off. Even though, the, the, and it's not even so much funny that he dies; it's the reaction. Oh man! Oh man! I just, oh, man, I just shot Marvin in the face. <laughs> you know, it it becomes a screwball comedy. I know. <laughs> um, yeah, there there are comfortable moments too in the movie before we get into spoilers, where it's like, do I laugh at this? Yeah, I saw you mostly laughing, or not mostly, but I saw you sometimes. I'd look over at you, and you'd have like a big smile on your face, which was kind of me when that the first time I saw the movie. Like the first time I saw the movie, at times my mouth was just hanging open, and I yeah. had a big like grin on my face because I'm like, somebody is actually getting away with this. Hmm. Um, all right, let's get in the spoilers. 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 All right, but, spoilers. Uh, but if you don't want to listen to the spoiler part, if you haven't seen it yet, uh. Hateful Eight, it's a really good movie, really unique. You'll never see anything else like it. Great cast, <coughs> uh, great, it's a pretty great story. Yeah, great I feel story. like it's, well, I feel like it also, um, it it has, I think, a deeper element to it where it's not, you know, it'd be one thing if it was just about, like, you know, bad outlaws and betrayal and this and that. I mean, obviously Tarantino's playing off of spaghetti Western tropes where that's been the plot of like probably a dozen spaghetti Westerns, but right. this has the added element of American history. You know, he, he started off this project initially, like he was going to write like a book spinoff. Like he was contracted to maybe write a book spinoff of Django. Right. And the very first chapter started as a, a Django story. Huh. But then he realized, all right, I'm not sure if I have a strong enough moral center. Like, I don't have a King Schultz here. Right. So he started to rewrite it, rework it, and became what it is. But it's significant that it takes place, you know, several years after the Civil War. And there's also an element involving a, a letter from Lincoln, which uh, I think is, like, from a screenwriting perspective, that's one of the things I love about Tarantino, too. He has just a masterful use of setup and payoff right. where the thing that you don't even really think is like a setup is kind of there. It's like, Oh, this is interesting. This is okay. I'm, I'm buying this. And then he'll bring up again later. And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And that it's funny too. Cause, uh, I mean, I don't know if we've, when we, when we should talk about any more Coney score, but there's a point where the letter is read and the music comes up, and it reminded me of uh, a piece from The Good and the Bad and the Ugly. I know the one you're talking You know about. I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Where Clint Eastwood is walking across the battlefield after the battle. Is I was thinking, thinking of? I was thinking of the one when the carriage comes through the desert. When he, oh, after okay. that long march through the desert that Eli Wallach makes him do. Yeah, I guess a little bit. Yeah. 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 There was another, there was actually a part of the overture that, 
not the whole time. Like, it's funny, the overture of the movie, it felt like if Ennio Morricone scored the opening of uh, The Shining. <laughs> it's like... Ooh, that's a cool... I haven't thought of that. That, that. that would actually be pretty good. Yeah, if you listen to it again, I... And then there's also a slight element in the overture that reminded me a little bit, too, of when um, Blondie and Tuco are walking across the desert. That... Well, you're talking about... Basically, you're comparing it to a whole bunch of other things that he's I know. I shouldn't do that. Okay, But it's still a great score. I bought the soundtrack a few days afterwards. I... What's kind of cool is that he apparently used uh, there. There are actually parts of the soundtrack, and I'm not sure which yet. I mean, I, I have a feeling maybe I should know. Uh, but there are a couple of pieces that are allegedly unused tracks from the thing. Really? Yeah. Wow. I I'm wondering which ones they are. I think. I mean, I, he recorded most original score for the movie. Uh, I but when you look back at it, it, it seems like such an obvious choice. I mean, we you and I were happy when we found out Ennio Morricone would be doing the whole yeah. score. And then, but then when you think about it, it's a film that visually references the thing, and it's a western. Yeah. And so the it most mixes famous. Up- composer of western soundtracks also composing a score for for a thing like movie yeah. which he also did it's a it's, super obvious choice why a, not it's a meta submarine sandwich yeah there you go <laughs> meta submarine sandwich i don't know i was just trying to, meta was... submarine sandwich the name of our new album <laughs> uh go buy it now at fye or sam goody you'll uh love it the me, the me, the wages of cinema presents meta submarine sandwich. <laughs> we all live in a meta. Available submarine. now on iTunes. All right. Use uh, the coupon code wages of cinema sandwich, <laughs> and you can get two dollars off a meta submarine sandwich. And you get a free sticker. Yeah, two free stickers. Because why not? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, no, more coin score is great. Yeah. I I'm gonna listen to that a bunch of times. All right, let's get into spoilers. All right, so, listen, spoilers. This is the spoilers spoiler section. Spo- I'm gonna do it again. Spoiler, 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 spoilers. I, I should actually, I should do like, uh, I should be a hypnotist and be like, "You're getting into spoilers. You're being, I am Hungarian and double jointed." Everybody who stuck around, good to see you. 
yeah. So, um, I think the yeah the the poison coffee element. I guess that is something that's taken from again now in the fifteen minutes that have elapsed since the since the end of the last act. <laughs> I, I the narration threw me off at first, but that's again that's something that I kind of like where even though it's narration, it's so obvious it feels like a joke. It does in a way. Yeah, but it, in a, but you also like let's not waste time saying what happened. Let's just put it in narration. Instead of just showing it, let me just tell you what it is so we can get up to speed. Well, he sh- well the thing is he shows you it too. It's like they dump Sam Smith's mo- they dump Smithers' body, and you see them dump the body. Senior Bob lit a cigarette, and you see him light a <laughs> cigarette. He's narrating the things you're seeing on screen. I have to think he's smart enough to know that he's doing that. But the point is, he also it's a key thing where he describes how the coffee was poisoned while uh, Samuel Jackson's delivering his uh, dingus monologue. Right. Um, and that speech, <clears throat> let's go back to that speech. Oh, yeah, sure. Because it comes basically out of freaking nowhere. Well, he, well, it's, you, well, starts... well, you get, well, you know that Marquis Warren and the, and the, is it the general? The, the yeah, General, general Smith. They have a history. Yeah, they, they, they knew each other. Like, there was like a, they actually they technically shared a battlefield. Yeah, they were they were opponents. Which, in the by Civil the way, War. as a student of history, I think that is based on an actual thing where, like, New Orleans was actually like taken or something. It was, but not like that. Oh, the okay. battle so he was talk- playing with history. The, the battle they're talking about doesn't exist, but it's not a problem because there were plenty of massacres of of black troops during the Civil War. Oh, I'm sure. So it's so it has historical precedence. You know, it sounds logical. I don't mind too much. And, yeah, and and, and in Glorious Bastards, since we accepted that, we <laughs> well, don't have to worry about historical accuracy is, from Quentin Tarantino. I feel like anymore. Hateful Eight is more historically accurate than uh, it, other it, movies. But I re- to me, it really doesn't matter how historically accurate. Oh Hateful no, Eight no, is he he said everything enough- in. Hatefully is tangential to history. It's it's still he's very much a satirist in that way, you know, taking all yeah. these elements I, but, and yeah, but that's them. but that's like typical spaghetti westerns. Like he, they reference the Civil War all the time, and whether or oh, not yeah. whether or not it happened doesn't make any difference. Well, yeah, I was gonna say I think that I've yeah I've heard from scholars and stuff that when uh, <clears throat> the way that Leone deals with the Civil War and the good, the bad, and the ugly is kind of cartoonish. But yeah. Who cares? Exactly. It doesn't make a difference. Um, I he, the the overall themes he deals with are re- are relevant and they're yes. authentic. But you know, who cares if he gets the facts wrong? It's a, it's it's one of the best westerns ever made. All right. And but, even even films like Django, the original Django, uh, and even Django Unchained, they have anachronisms and historical inaccuracies all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the guns that Django uses in Django Unchained hadn't been invented in the time that the film takes place. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I guess you're right. Of I, course I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> and in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, same thing. Those guns didn't exist at that time. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. sure. But it doesn't make a difference, because who cares? Yeah, just I just want mean... guns that shoot people. We don't care about reloading or about any sort of if, technology nonsense. And if Tarantino ever makes a movie set in the Revolutionary War, <laughs> imagine that. You see the guns that he just always uses when he should just have muskets. Yeah. Or he has, like, a super-powered musket. Yeah. You see, like, the bullet, like, shatter and, like, explode a guy. Doesn't make a damn bit of difference. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so, yeah, the point is, though, the coffee gets poisoned. Coffee gets poisoned. John Ruth drinks the coffee. Right. And also the, and he the driver. he vomits blood. 
it, it becomes <laughs> like uh, it becomes like a scene out of the Evil Dead or, or even like Cabin Fever. And again, it's just it's one of those things that's so awful you start laughing at it. Oh yeah, yeah. Our friend was like howling with laughter. Yes, who was with us? And I was like, "Jeez, come on!" I was gonna say, I know how you get, I know how you react to blood on screen, so that yeah. must have been uh, a bit troubling. Yeah, but well, he for a minute it becomes a straight up horror movie. Yeah. You know, because it's like not only him coughing up blood, it's him spewing blood onto Daisy one, Domergoo. And then when one of them stop, stops vomiting blood, the other starts vomiting blood. <laughs> so it's like... Bleh, bleh. I think it's because it's so much that it works. If it was, yes. like, subtle, it wouldn't work so much. Oh, no. Like, it, it's like... I've seen some people complain about that. Like, oh, it gets just too bloody. But no, I... Because I, I, I was watching... There, on the Double Toasted review of the movie, it was funny because they were like, man, the first half of this movie, it's like Tarantino's back. It's like we get that good, serious Tarantino. And the second half, it turns into a Grindhouse movie. He has to do that Grindhouse shit. I'm like, <laughs> it's not that Grindhouse-y. No. Not, not, not compared to Grindhouse. <laughs> you want to compare it to Planet Terror? Nah. Jeez. But then, yeah, so now it becomes really like Major Warren is trying to figure then out. Then it becomes the detective story where, where, detect, where Warren. I almost said Detective Warren. Looking at Warren. the details. Yeah, he, he brings Sherlock Holmes. But here's the problem with that I have now, thinking about this. Okay. According to the information we get and that Major Warren explains to us, okay. he gets a pretty good idea early on that Bob, the Mexican, is not who he says he is. Because he knows that Minnie didn't like Mexicans. Mm. And he also understands that Sweet Dave's chair is still there. And that if he had gone anywhere, Sweet Dave would have been there. And he eats the stew. And he talks about, you know, this is Minnie's stew. How yeah. could she? Ha how could it be here if she's been on the other side of the mountain yeah, for a whole that's week? A fair point. And then John Ruth, before that, says, one of these people isn't who they say they are. you, you got to help me. And he doesn't tell John Ruth any of this well he didn't know he he i think that for him he he what he was suspicious but he couldn't quite prove it like but he, they, but he, he didn't has... have to say anything clearly the bob is lying mm. from all the information he lays out in the second half of the film that information comes before anybody else is killed i feel like ruth... and he doesn't mention it to i him. feel like ruth said that bit before they ate the stew. Okay, before the stew, but what about everything else? Uh, I, I and, then, and then even after they eat the stew, I mean, Warren's busy doing other things. He Like t like mm. uh, taunting General Smithers. Yeah, I think his mind was more on that. I well, think yeah, that but he... still, they ha there's this guy who is, who, like, they're looking for a guy who isn't who he says he is. Warren knows that this guy isn't who he says he is. Hmm. He doesn't tell anybody. It's a What's the deal with that? It's a fair point. I think that... Well, well, first of all, then you'd cut out like a half hour of the movie. But that doesn't excuse a flaw in the script. Hmm. I'd have to see it again to see where that comes up. Because I, really, I didn't really catch as a flaw. I think, like for me, in the flow of the story... As it was going on, it seemed it just. Uh, I, I think that Warren had a lot of the pieces together, but he. But like the coffee element is what really 
set them off. Well, the coffee really, really accelerates the story I mean, because two characters die. Yeah, we, he gets a sense that Gage is pretty much pretty much level because he was about to drink the coffee. I guess maybe I guess your point is that if the coffee didn't happen, would Warren bring all this up to Ruth? I don't understand why he shouldn't have brought it up. Hmm. I mean, they're both experienced bounty hunters. And John Ruth is paranoid that somebody is going to try to kill him to set Don Ragu free. So, if they're working together, why, why isn't Warren telling Ruth all these inconsistencies? Hmm. I'm, I'm just trying to think about... That, to me, seems like the big flaw in the story. Hmm. Because then... You know, if if they're both working together, why why not say anything? Because John Ruth takes people's saying. guns simply so that he can feel better. <laughs> well, no, well, no, he does take their guns. I mean, that that is an element too that you yeah. didn't mention. Well, I forget. Did Bob? I don't think Bob had his gun. He, I don't even think he had a gun throughout the, the entire film. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. Um, yeah, because well, I guess I'm like I said, I'm trying to think about. Because Warren and Senior Bob have a scene in the barn, and that's where he first kind of is suspicious, but he doesn't say anything. But he's, he's just like... And, and, but that even makes it worse. He's been suspicious of Bob the whole time, hmm. and he knows there are all these consi- inconsistencies. So what conclusion could he possibly draw other than this man is plotting something and I lying guess, to I us? I guess ultimately the whole... I guess you know what it was, Tarantino, like... I mean, I'm not excusing this. Maybe you're right, but like... He just wanted to have a scene where Samuel Jackson gets to have a big showy telling him off type of moment. Maybe, but uh, it still it still strikes me as a flaw. See, now I my flaw with the it's not even so much with the movie, but it's with a credit. Uh, we talked about Seven, of course, and okay, and one of the things with that movie is that Kevin Spacey asked, and the production thought it was a good idea that he didn't get a credit in the opening. Of the movie, and not even, and not, and he didn't even put his name on the movie posters. No, he, you see in his credit at the end of the movie, right? Should they have that done... was so that nobody would say, "Oh, Kevin Spacey's in this. He hasn't shown up yet. He's obviously." Uh, Do you think you know. they should have done that with Channing Tatum? Because well, I, I, I'm torn. Because on the one hand, I, I saw his credit in the opening credits. I'm like, oh, he's in this movie. That's cool. Right. And then gradually, I kind of forgot he was in the movie. I think that's what Tarantino was banking on. But then when he popped up again, it, you know, right before at the end of chapter four, I'm gonna right. say, um, then it becomes the big surprise, and it's a big surprise, right? You know, he's literally hiding under. He's hiding in the basement. Yeah, he's hiding in the basement and shoots Warren, and that sets off more bloodshed. Should he have been credited at the end? Because I think he should have. I well. Speaking of from my experience with the film, I was thinking I really wasn't sure. Okay, I saw his name in the credits. Yeah. And then I wasn't thinking about him. And then there was that scene where Warren gives that speech to, to General Smithers. Yeah. And I thought, oh, wait, maybe he's the guy who's playing Smithers' son. Hmm. And because I, I didn't really think about that. And I thought, well, you and, thought he was the sp- guy wandering in the snow? Yeah, because he had. <laughs> Because that did not look like Channing Tatum at all. But well, but really? he had a beard, and I and I wasn't no. quite sure. Channing Tatum's built. Huh. <laughs> but I, was, I did not. But think then that I wasn't even second. thinking about it. Like I didn't even think about Channing Tatum until that scene. I'm like, okay, maybe that was him. Whatever. But then Channing Tatum reveals himself. Yeah. 
But he wasn't even in the... He was a character we didn't expect to be there in the first place. Okay, so that's because, so you think it's different than the Kevin Spacey thing? Yes, because Kevin Spacey was supposed to be John Doe. Yeah. We knew John Doe was in this from the beginning. There's this mysterious murderer who's killing all these people. We got we don't know what he looks like. Yeah. But if we had known Kevin Spacey was in that film, we would have been like, well, obviously he's played by Kevin Spacey. I guess, but right, for, for but me, we had no idea that Channing Tatum's character was even in the film. Hmm. until he shoots Warren through the, through the floor. Yeah. We had no idea there was even a basement. Hmm. And so by the film's rules and by the logic of cinema, really there was no reason to expect Channing Tatum was there hmm. or that he would even pop up. Yeah. That way. Okay. I guess that's I guess that's a good explanation. I just Which is why I the flashback for, is so I think important. for I think maybe more yeah, well yeah, that's where he shows up in the flashback. If you it's funny because some uh, on YouTube there have been a couple of people over the years who have like someone tried to do a linear version of Pulp Fiction, right? And it becomes really it doesn't work because no. you know seeing seeing what uh, Marcellus Wallace looks like up front first of all is not you know because you don't see what he looks like until well into the movie as it is, right? And also how you cut the diner scene together is really weird. Like you wouldn't. Yeah, the way that Tarantino tells the story, you wouldn't be able to, uh, uh, you wouldn't be able to unfold it if it was linear. Like it wouldn't work the same way. If imagine if like they intercut between the stagecoach and the Domergu gang showing up at the Haberdashery. Yeah, if they put that in chronological order, there would have been no suspense at all. No, because uh, what we're expect, and then what we're expecting throughout the film is that one person here is going to kill everybody. But then we realized three, everybody who we don't know is actually against us. Three different men. Hmm. We were expecting one, and then all three were yeah. the people we should have been watching out for. Yeah. I'm still thinking about the point you made about uh, why Warren didn't tell Ruth his suspicions. I'm going to, when I watch the movie again, and I, this is a movie that I'm, I'm probably going to see maybe one or even yeah. two more times in the theater. Cause I, I do that with movies I love. Right. Um, also you're rich. No, <laughs> I go to the, <laughs> please all of you listeners come to my house and I have so many things to offer you. Man's come got a to pool, my, he has a bowling alley. Come to my Jack kingdom as I stand atop it like Scarface. King Jack, <laughs> pile of Coke right here on this podcasting table. King Jack coming soon to a theater near you. Um, no, but when I watch it again, I'm going to see what reason he would have had to not tell him it. Yeah. Well, keep an eye out for it. If you can explain it by the time of the next podcast, that'd be great. Yeah. Because right now it's just sticking out to me. Like, 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 again, it's the kind of thing that didn't, it didn't bother me when I watched it just because I think the way it was written, I, I guess I just wasn't thinking about that. Right. right. But again, you might be right. It could be a flaw, but I just, uh, like logically, it's hard for me to see where it would have made sense for for Warren to come over for Warren to come over to to Ruth and tell him all that. Like I'm wondering again what the escalation also of the suspicion was. I mean, because when Warren first comes into the haberdashery, he's already a little bit like, huh? 
And then he like sees the jelly bean in the floor. Yeah, that's that I thought was a nice touch. That's still a very that that pays pays off when we see the flashback. But again, yes. it's a very minor clue. That, oh sure, yeah. sure. Uh, yeah, no, I'm yeah, I'm gonna have to think about the elements that you said with the stew, with uh, the not chair, Mexicans, the chair, the Mexicans, and the stew. Those those yeah. are the three was, bits of information. Was Tim Roth sitting in the chair? I feel like when yes, Mo he break, was. He was sitting in the chair, not maybe not for because the whole Because Smithers time. had been sitting in the other chair the whole time. Yeah, Smithers was sitting in the other chair. And Tim Roth was sitting down when... Was he wh- sitting in the chair when Warren got in? Because I thought... Again, we're getting into like minutia maybe. But I thought that when Ruth came in, Roth, uh, Mowbray was sitting in the chair. You're right. Okay. All right. But the point is, though, and the ending is where it also... You know, Domergu finally gets to have her, you know, moment. Right. <laughs> um, what do you think of Jennifer Jason Lee in the movie? I think she's great. She's That's good. all I can say. Like, yeah, she uh, she's like feral in this. Feral, yes. When I talked about how um, in the last podcast, if you remember, I talked about this movie that I saw called Animal Lisa. Right, it's a stop motion movie, and she plays a character in it. Um, it's funny because in that movie, there's a scene where she um. She she sings a version of Girls Just Want to Have Fun huh. to this guy. It's a very, like, soft, low-key, like, just by her, you know, no music behind her. And also in this movie, you have her playing the song on the guitar. Yeah. And it's like, I to myself, I thought, wow, my two favorite moments of the year have Jennifer Jason Lee <laughs> doing very singing different gu- songs. songs. Yeah. yeah, but very pivotal moments in the plot. Um, yeah. That's something cool, by the way, in the soundtrack, they have her... <laughs> singing that yeah which is great because she it's not a perfect version like she just messes it up a couple yeah. of times and and the movie i'd seen jennifer jason lee in before this was single white female oh she, oh she's in that yeah okay i didn't i should have known that <laughs> and like and i said to, i said to matt before this yeah the last film i saw her in was single white female if, if we consider that the low point let's see how high we can get from she, there it's there are a number of films of her like i I still have not... This is one of my great cinematic gaps. I've never seen all of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Hmm. But one day on TV, I actually saw some scenes that she was in. And that was... That was she was actually pretty good in that. Good. Um, and I love... Uh, Samuel Jackson is just... Ugh, well, so Quentin good. Tarantino writes such great stuff for him. Oh yeah, no, he, it's like it's it's uh, hard for him to go wrong. As long as he maintains his energy and, you know, and does what he does, he, yeah. he's great. Mm-hmm. Sure, and uh, I don't know. Where, where are some other things we could talk about? Spoiler. I mean, yeah. I mean, Domergu is the one who gets hanged. Yeah. I mean, and this is after even more bloodshed and Tim Roth once again bleeding, bleeding and out. talking. <laughs> um, yeah. It uh, it, like the last act is just like lots of negotiating and also like. Is Chris Mannix going to flip? But very, very desperate negotiations where everybody is wounded. <laughs> but also that great thing where, okay, one of the things I also like, I thought was just so brilliant for me is that you, you really, you really can't be sure if that gang of fifteen are going to come, but they True. probably are. Maybe it's it's a it's a the way that it's described. It's like, okay, they could come. They might be fake. Like, because, like, the way that Manic says, I think you're full of it. I think yeah. that you're just saying all this to try, you know, so that you can, uh, 
you know, get away from here. Yeah. But maybe there is a gang. Maybe. <laughs> but it really, at the end, it really doesn't matter. No, it's all about these people it's dying all about in this cabin. Eight people. Yeah, it's Although just it's a, ten if you want to be technical. <laughs> yeah, about these eight people coming to grips with life after slavery and being a bunch of bad, bad people. Oh yeah, and then here's an, uh, it's a bit of a nihilistic ending. That's what I was thinking of because I was thinking is this... that something that troubled you? Yeah, well maybe not troubled, but there was something that came to mind after I saw it that it seemed like this was quentin tarantino's most nihilistic film well reservoir dogs had a bit of nihilism to it it did but it did have characters who while they were bad while they were criminals they seemed like okay guys like you could carry on a conversation with mr white or or uh or not mr blonde probably not but but like all those people mr pink maybe well as well in between yeah well they but they seemed like just people who were doing a job. They seemed like professionals. You could identify with them to a certain extent, even if you're, you know, not a criminal. The characters in Hateful Eight, I guess you could say, are more duplicitous. Yeah, and let's think about Django Unchained. Django is a story of. Oh well, Django's different. That's that's Django and Bastards are kind of like his quote-unquote happy movies. Yeah, those have like endings where you're like, woo. Yeah, and while the, the end of Hateful Eight, you're like. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> but I mean, all of Quentin the Tarantino, American dream is doomed. Like okay. most, most of Quentin Tarantino's characters have been sympathetic, or or at least had a goal we could cheer for. The bride was trying to get revenge for you know for her betrayal. Yeah. Uh, all the all the women in Death Proof were trying to to not only survive but get back at this serial killer. And, oh yeah. And, and then there's Inglorious Bastards. They're trying to kill Nazis and Hitler. And yeah. then Django. It's against white slaveholders and a man who's just trying to get his wife back. Yeah. And then in this, you have bounty hunters who are hunting down criminals, people who deserve to be hanged. But they, there's very little to set them apart. The, John the, Ruth is brutal. He he hits Domergu in the face all the time just when he's annoyed. The funny thing is, though, compared to the other characters, it's like. Yeah, he hits her in the face all the time, and yet there's a part of him that's kind of likable. He's funny. He he's amusing. Yeah, he he has real character to him. And, but and, and then Warren, he he's he, he seems like an okay guy, but then when he gives that big speech in the middle of the film, you realize this guy is just as violent as probably any of the criminals that he he he's he's brought to justice. Well, he also you also have that backstory about him where and he, he went, burned uh what was it? allegedly he burned down that prisoner of war camp killing not only the guards but a lot of prisoners too. Yeah, so he you know, it's like I think an element when you watch pulp fiction you know, that has some bad characters, you know, so when I say bad characters, I mean like they're, you know, killers they're, and, they're and, killers and, and, and gangsters and all that. And right, but of course, at the end of Pulp Fiction, you have that whole, uh, you know, element of can this guy be redeemed? Is right. he going to, when he steps away from this life, what happens when he tries really hard to be the shepherd? What, so happens, what happens when he tries to wander the earth like King yeah. Kung Fu? Whereas in Hateful Eight. I don't know if Tarantino really intends for these characters to be redeemed at all. Maybe yeah. they can't be. But maybe they're irredeemable. No, that's maybe... Because it's hard yeah. to find somebody who is really sympathetic. I mean... Uh... I, because even though well, Daisy Domergu plays... is a criminal, yeah, we don't get, a, get any, any inkling of what crimes she's committed. 
but meanwhile we see jo- John Ruth beat her up, and then we hear about I get everything the sense that she Marcus probably Warren ki- is she probably about. killed somebody Maybe. or killed some people. I mean, why is she but, being hanged? Yeah, but I mean, could she have possibly killed any more people than these bounty bounty hunters have? Mm, I they sure. Uh, Mar- uh, Marcus Warren says, you know. Most of us will just shoot you in the back from a, from up on top of a hill yeah. and drag you in on a saddle. That's something. Is that, that anything is... more heroic than she, than she had possibly done? That was actually a key monologue, which uh, they also feature on the soundtrack. Right, they feature a lot of clips from dialogue from the movie. There's this whole thing that Tim Roth talks about frontier justice. Yeah, and uh, I guess that's something that they must play with a little bit in the movie. Yeah, um, but but it's, it's hard for me to tell what exactly it's saying about any of these things. I think that these the, characters, for me, what I read into it again when I mentioned that it's a it's a dark look at history because you have all these people who, you know, some of them were involved in the war, some weren't. But it's like a, like the American possibility, the American dream to try to come together has completely failed them, and this Lincoln letter is kind of emblematic of. We, you know, we, you know, he, Mar- Marky Warren made up that letter so yeah. that he can try to get favor with white people. And of course, John Ruth finds it just like a dirty trick. Yeah, because um, he, because he bought, he into, bought into it, it so well. We bought into it. Yeah. You know, the way that he, we don't really get to read the full letter. We're just seeing him read it and he's like, Mary Todd's calling. Yeah. And it's like telling a kid, it's like telling a kid that Santa exists. And when he said, but why did I get all the stuff from my Christmas list? Like, it's because we read them and got it for you, you dumb kid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you feel like the same thing. Like, Oh, now I feel hurt yeah. and sad. Yeah. I think that with Tarantino, if, if he made nothing but movies like the hateful eight, I would mm. probably be like tired of it. Yeah. But because, but in the sense of like a flow of a career, because he's had two movies where it's been like, Yay! Awesome adventure, and you know we're we're you know these, you know King Schultz is, you know he's a really good guy. Yeah, he, I mean, get yeah, granted he kills people, but he does it just. But he has know, some he has some moral standards. He has some scruples. Yeah, I mean the moral standards of the Hateful Eight. It's like, yeah, huh. these are these are bargain basements moral standards. Even the even the general. I mean, I guess you could say he's just kind of like. But he he led like a Confederate troop and killed a bunch of people too. Yeah, and maybe when he does die, you kind of do feel a little sorry for him. Mm. But it's uh, it's I, it's just it's, it's funny just though, hard I, to. There's no there is no morality in this film that you can hang your hat on and say this is right, this is wrong. Yeah, but I think that's part of the idea, and I, I, think, I think that's what makes it right. so fascinating is that and you kind of have to decide like. All right, am I with this character all the way? Like because Chris Mannix is somebody who, you know, again, he's the son of a of a rebel renegade group that yeah. was, you know, really bad in the war. But by the last chapter, he's kind of like the guy you're rooting for. Yeah. And and to Tarantino's credit, there no character is a total scumbag. No character is is there's a lot a of hero. there's a lot more there's nuance. a lot there's there's a lot of nuance and ca- the characters are balanced yeah you, I, you can you can the the bounty hunters are likable yeah uh you can <laughs> uh you can feel some sort of sympathy even towards the, the somewhat villainous characters and yeah. you understand everybody's motivations so they're extreme they're very well drawn disturbs me i mean it just it's the, something that you, nihil- you, could, you definitely take note of it. Yeah, you, you notice the nihilism, whether and whether you oh, like well, it or I, not is, is, is oh, another thing. I'm oh. not bothered by the nihilism. I'm 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 really pointing it out. Uh, 
the the only thing that I point out that makes me a little uncomfortable in this film is basically just how how badly Daisy Domergu gets treated in this film. Well, yeah, and, and, but and but then by the end, it's kind of like, oh well, she's a pretty nasty character. Yeah, but I mean, she was no as I said earlier, it's, she seems no more nasty, no nastier than anybody else in this film. Yeah, and yet she gets the most abuse, and she's basically. She is practically the only female character in this film. Yeah, almost. I mean, there is a couple of small in the in the haberdashery flashbacks. Yeah, but but still, no deep personalities that you can really <laughs> count on here. Yeah, all right. Um, she she gets punched all the time. But then, but then, the could nose. you say though that's also there's a part of the performance of it too? Because again, the whole movie, she knows that she's she's awaiting to get saved by her gang. Maybe she, you know, again, the only people who aren't really performing, quote unquote, are Ruth and Warren. Right. They are who they say they are on face value, mostly. Yeah, which I guess, you know, that makes them, I guess Mannix, too. Yeah, but we to, do have doubts about who he is. Oh, sure. Well, it's it's interesting because he's somebody who, to my understanding, so he wasn't part of the rebel marauder group. He might have been, but he's, he's it's, it's, he was certainly the son of the leader. Yeah, exactly. Um, I right, but but everyone's like, is this guy really sheriff? He seems yeah. kind of like kind of like an idiot. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, General Smithers! Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, he's a bit of a bumpkin. It's yeah. just, and uh, you know, the actors just relish it. Though I think that they, you know, having roles like this. I mean, you don't really get many roles like this in big mainstream movies. Is you know? it now? Let's get back to the idea of Quentin Tarantino films in general. Sure. Inglorious Bastards yeah. is about Jewish commandos hunting Nazis. Yes. Django Unchained is about a slave trying to rescue his wife and get revenge on his owners. It's also a bit of Star Wars. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I don't know if I've expounded on that theory in the past. These but seem like... When you hear these ideas, you're like, why didn't anybody think about this in the first place? Hmm. Does it seem to you like that? Because it seems it's it you know seems what? like such a satisfying idea. Yet nobody else even got close to that idea until Quentin Tarantino said, "This is what it's about." Well, well, he's well, he's playing around with things that are have been around. It's just that, yeah, I guess people wouldn't think about. It. I mean, in large part, Inglorious Bastards is a like about fantasy. Yeah, but no, but it's also about propaganda. True. And it, it's playing on and and filmmaking in general. If you want to be if you want to go a little further than that, yeah. Well, yeah, filmmaking of course, but it's also playing on the idea that back in the '40s you had movies which were very much both from the Germans and from Americans, where they had very, so to speak, distinct points of view right. about showing one side versus the other. Um, and in here, it's like he's making uh, a gigantic you know, satire on propaganda and filmmaking in uh, as yeah, well that, as a war movie. And that's, you know, if you want to go deeper into that, sure, that exists. Yeah. But why? That's why I love Ingor the Bastard so much. Yeah. It's like, but, it's so they, many things. And these ideas, they seem so original, but then they seem obvious at the same time. Oh, like, sure. Why hasn't anyone made, why hadn't anyone made a film about Jews getting revenge on Nazis in World War II? Or why didn't they, well, anyone make a, a like a bloody sort of slave revenge story? Ju, ju, um, they actually, well, they kind of did with, uh, well, Munich. <laughs> um, 
Well, sort of me, but I was also thinking of this movie called Defiance. Defiance. You're, oh, yeah. I remember I, that one. It was but, kind but, of forgettable. But still, yeah. But, but then the execution on that is kind of forgettable. It's like, it seems oh, like... Oh, sure. I'm not sure exactly where I'm going with this. You're, you're, you, know what it, it, you know what you're touching on? He, uh... Like, when I see Inglorious Bastards, I almost... It, it feels like a... And I see this actually in a huge complimentary sense. It's almost like a comic book movie or something. That's why maybe what you're touching on, the obviousness. And Django Unchained actually got adapted into a comic book. Huh. You have these ideas and themes which are so broad, but, you know, they're larger than life. And hmm. yet you kind of bring it back to something. But then when you're actually filming it and the way that Tarantino films stuff, he mostly films it in a pretty realistic way. Yeah. Um, so when you watch something like Django Unchained, yeah, you have a lot of mixing of music and, you know, violence and stuff. Yeah. But, um, uh, but the sensibility is just, I mean, you know, for example, like take Watchmen, you know, that seems like a concept that, you know, should be pretty obvious. You know, you have all these ex superheroes who, uh, uh, you know, have to figure out, you know, why one of their, why one of them has been killed right and you know exploring like what happens if like nixon stays in office and like things like this i looked at i looked at glorious bastards as a bit as like tarantino's watchman or something taking history and taking historical context and warping it into his own thing it just makes me wonder why didn't anyone think of this sort of idea before nobody's Tarant- just, nobody else is tarantino i guess i i i don't think that Maybe somebody else can really get away with it on his scale. Maybe, maybe that's you could, what maybe it you could is, get away with think... maybe you can get away with it in like a book or something. But in like a big movie that has a budget of like eighty to hundred million dollars. Yeah, you know, his think, movies have a lot of money. I and think stars. that's. I think you fit it on the head. That's what I'm trying to kind of struggling with is that Tarantino can get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, it seems like if if you pitch this idea to maybe like a studio executive, like if you weren't Tarantino, you said, oh, it's a film about Jewish commandos during World War Two, fighting Nazis. And they were like, nah. <laughs> no, no, or there would have they been would some sort that? of or, or like through rewrites, it would have gotten like blander or. Oh, yeah. No, no. Well, that's part of the thing, too. Tarantino doesn't have to answer to anybody. Right. He's one of the only people in Hollywood who makes. Well, for one thing, he writes his own material. He gets to dictate whatever he wants, and uh, you know the only people that he has, to, the only the only person he has to answer to is his own imagination, and that's what you don't really get with that many filmmakers today. Like maybe if more filmmakers were allowed to take risks and chances, then you would get things like Django Unchained, or I mean, could you imagine like pitching Kill Bill to a studio where okay, it's about this? I, initially, it might sound like a a typical genre thing right. a woman gets gunned down on her wedding and she is going to get right. revenge against the five who killed her but it's not only you know it's it's going to be a thriller but then it's also going to we're going to have a chapter where she's then for like gonna, yeah. she has to flash back to when she was trained by her chinese kung fu master yeah you present that to a studio they'll be like what yeah. no get out of here and then like the only other female revenge lead that i can think of is i think this film called columbiana mm. and uh, and no one cares about columbiana <laughs> i think i have I, I remember i had a friend who was excited yeah that like movie. like a little girl her parents are gunned down in front of her and then like she grows up and t- tries to get revenge and that film disappeared i don't even know why i remember that film 
I think I remember this the trailer or something. Yeah, I don't I, remember the. I don't. I don't think I saw the movie. Um. Yeah, but that's that's the that's the point I'm getting at. It's Tarantino has the kind of autonomy that somebody like only, like maybe Kubrick had that autonomy. Mm. He was able to basically do whatever he wanted, and you know, you think about somebody like him who, you know, ma- makes something like Clockwork Orange, and can you imagine? You know anybody else saying, "Okay, now I'm going to do a very s- deliberately paced period piece yeah. about like a guy rising through the ranks in like 18th century uh, England." Yeah, and and you're talking about people who have films that are wildly different from each other. I mean, the, the same guy who did The Shining also did 2001: A Space Odyssey, and mm-hmm. then you have a guy who does, you know, Reservoir Dogs is kind of this not very flashy crime film doing something like Inglorious Bastards or or Kill Bill, which is probably one of the flashiest things. Well, his career kind of evolved. I mean, in the 90s, Tarantino was making kind of like that kind of crime movie. Like, you know, because I had the thought, you know, when I was a fan of him in the 90s, I was like, okay, so he makes this kind of movie. That's cool. Right. Then he makes Kill Bill, and it's just like my brain exploded. It's like... Again, you know, how do you pitch to a studio, okay, you have this female revenge movie, and then there's going to be a 20-minute anime sequence. Right. <laughs> and as you said, he, he doesn't really answer to anybody but himself, and it's also kind of why he can get away with some uses of the N-word. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> it's... Well, I, I, he... The way... You know... The way I feel about it, I almost think with Hateful Eight, I was talking about this with Corey, how... I almost kind of wonder if this movie is his rebuke to critics over how he used it in Django. It's like, oh, you think I used it a lot then? Yeah. Wait till you see how I use it now. Except that it's almost arguable that in this movie it has, like, you know, it, it, it works a little bit better because you don't just have random, like, because in Django, you know, there's a scene where Django's, like, walking into town. It's just, like, everybody in town's like, oh, hey, there's a there's a guy, there's an N-word on the horse. Yeah. And... You know, it's just like almost cartoonish. Although it, although it does seem a little more, in, it doesn't seem as out of place because it's a film about slavery. Do you think that? Well. Do you think it was out of? Do you think it wasn't? You think it was out of place in this movie? These characters who, again, uh, you, know, you have characters who went through the Civil War and uh, you know feel very passionately about this. He's also the only black character. Yeah. In it, so he's they they kind of you know again and also. 1870s it's kind of like it was thrown around as like a comma <laughs> it wasn't yeah uh, i mean there were there was like maybe one or two instances where i wondered why wouldn't he just say warren in that moment instead of, uh, but there's as we said the man gets away with it yeah he and that's that's kind of like the it's it's kind of funny when i mentioned kubrick he uh his wife said uh about him that he once told her i guess i'm still fooling them <laughs> I think that's what Tarantino's career is. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm still fooling them. I'm, I'm getting away with having like a three-hour movie shot on Ultra 70 that is just set in mostly one space, and you know, yeah. and yet people go to see it because yeah. I think part of it too is because again, there's nothing else quite like it. True. You know, on the one hand, you have Star Wars, which you know, as enjoyable as it is, it is like other Star Wars movies. Right. And yet Hateful Eight, yeah, you could say it's like Tarantino, what he does, but he's growing. He's doing something a little different. He's trying to expand a little bit on things we've seen in Reservoir Dogs and things like that. All right.
No. All is right. There anything, is there anything I, that we didn't say? I think I'm we've been all talking tapped for out. a while. Um, my final thought is, uh, well, uh, if you can go see this movie, uh, if you possibly can try to see it in 70 millimeter, I don't know if it's going to be playing that much longer. Like, it's kind of like get your free booklet. Yeah, and yeah, get your free booklet. Um, or see it in digital. I hear that's not that bad an experience either. Nice. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love it. I mean, it's my, it's my favorite movie of the year. Um, and I, like I said, it's, it's the kind of movie that I want to now take other people to see. I want to see their reactions when I'm sitting next to them as all the surprises happen. And uh, to, uh, be fun. yeah. And, um, and also get the soundtrack if you, uh, want to support any more Clooney's first, uh, Western score in 40 years. It's also the first score I've heard from just in a while. He he's mostly been working just kind of exclusively in Italy, hmm. and he's been working like in movies that I don't know maybe they eventually find their way to America, but he hasn't really scored a movie that got like any kind of distribution in a while. So it feels like an event in that way too. Plus, <laughs> if you're a Western fan, it's just a really good Western. So yeah, good it. yeah, good Western, a good mystery. And uh, if you have any thoughts about the Hateful Eight or just want to say that we're wrong, uh, which sometimes happens. I know you're probably listening to this and thinking, you're so effing wrong! You're wrong! Well, if you... well, Or think if, or, or if we got something right, send us an email to wagesofcinema at gmail.com. You got it right! You got it so right! <laughs> yes! God. Yes! Yes! I just picture the... You've seen that clip from... Uh, 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 the X Men cartoon. No, with uh, not was it X Men Street Fighter? Oh yes, sorry. Yes, old yes! internet memes aside. All right, internet memes aside, Hateful Wage... Eight was good. Yes, Hateful Eight was great. Wages of Cinema at Gmail dot com. You can also reach us on Facebook uh, at uh, Wages of Cinema Podcast, Twitter handle at Wages of Cinema, and we're on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please subscribe, and if you're on iTunes, uh, write us a review. We could use all the uh, uh, attention we can get. <laughs> we're attention whores, and how? Yes. Um, and uh, when we come back uh, next time, we'll have another full episode of movies and and talk. And uh, and by the way, happy New Year, Andrew. Happy New Year, Jack. Happy New Year to you all. And uh, to all a happy new year. Yes, from the wages of cinema. Remember, the wages of cinema is death. Pew, 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 pew. We got a new logo too. It's fancy. Pew, pew, pew. Yes, yes. Check out our new logo. You can see it at the Facebook page, and it should be in other places. Wages too. cinema death. Good night. Listen, all you people, try and understand. You may be a soldier, woman, child, or man. But there won't be many coming home